It's time for a little something. I forget. My notes say I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and I'm here with Luke Allen from Rocking Horse Media, among other things, filmmaker and podcaster. And it's time to discuss Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But they're erasing me, and I have no memory of this. (laughs) I do have notes, though. It's all a lie. Well, I think these are my notes. (laughs) (laughs) They're listed as Robert's notes. That's a solid intro. I like that. Yeah. So minute four, we've already said this. If you're following all three shows, minute fours are boring. Nothing's happening. It's barely set up. At this point, we had it set up last minute. Now it's transitioned to plot sort of yeah it's i i hate to say people walking people driving yeah if i saw this minute four with no further context of the film i would probably throw it away as an artsy film that i couldn't care less about i was trying to get sarah my wife to be the guest for minute five of these three and i showed her the three minutes and just in watching them I'm like yeah she's not gonna want to do these <laughs> nothing happens <laughs> i assume she's seen all three of the films because of you yeah, yeah, yeah. yes she hadn't seen Ex Machina until just recently. Oh, really? And so she, she's eager to talk about it, but she wants to wait until it's more of a philosophical minute when they're talking about self and identity and ever all the other stuff. There's lots of dialogue in, actually, in all three of these movies have a lot of talking. I got to say, about time, minute four, I've just checked. Pretty good. What was it? New Year's party, everyone's kissing, he shakes Polly's hand, Jimmy's meeting Kit Kat, Tim walks past and accidentally, does he knock over the table? Actually, if the handshake happens... Minute four, yeah, that's a good little bit. You don't know what the movie is yet, but it's a good little... Jay knocks over the table before then as well. Mm. Of minute fours, that's a pretty solid minute four. Minute four of Eternal Sunshine starts on the beach. This is probably Umbrella Beach in Montauk. It's hard to tell. He continues his voiceover about sand, where he says it's just tiny little rocks. And then we see him with his briefcase, and in the distance, Clementine, very small. We get just Clementine. She's walking toward us, blue hair, orange hoodie. Then back to Clementine in the distance, still close to camera, looking toward her. So I know that we're supposed to be able to keep track of her hair, aren't we? To try and figure out which version of Clementine we're seeing. Is that, that's the thing, right? Sort of. I, I've never been able to remember. <laughs> it's fine, because also we get elements when she starts getting involved in his memories being erased yeah toward the end is her hair is actually the wrong color in some scenes because there's scenes she's not supposed to be in okay but generally yeah you can track the progression of the plot by her hair color blue being the latest because this is going toward the end of the film yeah i i really like it as a concept and i think ex machina is the prime not ex machina sorry eternal sunshine is the prime example of one of those films that definitely requires multiple viewings to fully understand what's going on I have something to say about Ex Machina really quickly. Yeah. And I'm going to leave it in this show. Ooh, Easter egg. Just to mess with people. Just occurred to me, because I like the idea that Caleb is AI. What if that also repeats? What if every time Nathan made a new AI, he has this Caleb by AI come and interact with it and see what happens? (laughs) (laughs) We're just seeing the last one where it goes horrible. (laughs) All the other ones failed to get his attention. And what would it say about what it means to be human for it to be the idea of finding flaws in one another? Yeah, I like that. I mean, that is a very human trait, to be fair. It also has a weird implication about the technology, though, is that Caleb's a really good AI. <laughs> He's been around that whole time. Nathan just has a really bad time writing women, <laughs> programming them. <laughs> he finally makes one that isn't submissive, and it's like, oh, shit, we're all going to die. 
I, I'm intrigued now, is it, with, with the concept of screenwriting as well, like as, as a screenwriter trying to create dialogue. That might be in it. I, I might watch it again and see if that reading works at all. It might not. <laughs> but if it does, then it's awesome. That is an interesting approach that I that I like. And people who are Minutia X Mac and the listeners who don't listen to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute have missed out on this. Yep. Serves them right. I'm sure it'll come up sometime in that show, <laughs> but not this first time. So Joel says, if only I could meet someone new. And she starts walking again. He turns away. He says, I guess my chances of that happening are somewhat diminished, seeing that I'm incapable of making eye contact with a woman I don't know. It's quite interesting to talk about. This is just after he just decides to miss work, isn't it? Yes. So the idea of seeing a guy with a briefcase on the beach is is like a rarity that is quite a visually striking image i think yeah i i can't really imagine well yeah she looks like she prepared for this yeah she's got her hoodie on she's nice and warm she's got i don't think we see him at the end of the minute she's got like those warmer glove things yeah like fingerless gloves he's keeping warm whereas he's just wearing his outfit he was going to work in still has his briefcase it's interesting because i'm, I'm trying to think because i don't really live near many beaches I guess there must be some beaches that are the easiest way to walk to work for some people. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't, it, it, it's not like a concept that I'm used to. I walk along a river to college. That's nice. Well, and they probably wouldn't walk on the sand. No. Because if they're working somewhere that's out on the sand and out on the beach, they're not dressing. You're not taking a briefcase. It's not that kind of work. No. And yeah. And if you're not, then you're bringing sand into, on, off your shoes into wherever. Yeah. 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 So you dress more like you're just going to the beach, probably. Mm. So yeah, seeing someone dressed for work with a briefcase on the beach is just an interesting piece of imagery <laughs> that I definitely probably didn't twig upon first viewing, but just kind of skimming through it, it feels odd. And there's probably some deep metaphor that I could come up with. Well, I, I think it goes not as a metaphor, but it goes to the setup and the plot. She is someone who does things on a whim on a regular basis. That's part of who she is. Yeah. So she would just go to Montauk for the day. I don't know where in february when it's inappropriate mm. but you would dress knowing it's going to be cold whereas he didn't plan for this it was just we'll learn later in the film it was planted in his head by his version of her yeah and so he's not he doesn't do things on a whim even now in the voiceover he says maybe i should get back with naomi and in the script there's more to it because he said it was weird to fall into our old familiar sex life so easily like no time has passed after two years apart suddenly we're talking about getting together again i guess that's good would you count her as like one of the prime examples of a manic pixie dream girl? Clementine, yes, but she is also like what is the movie? Guy invents the girl by writing her. Oh, why can't I think of the title? I think I know what you mean. I don't know if I've seen it. I suddenly can't think of the title. It's her name in it, I think. What's her name? What's her name? What's her name? What's he in? Uh, there he's in there. Will be blood. Paul Dana. Ruby Sparks. It's her name. Okay, I don't think I know that. Similar to Ruby Sparks, Clementine is a specific sort of counter to that idea. She's presented as that, but that's because we're seeing his impression of her. We see the scene where she outright tells him that's not who she is. Okay. That she's this idea that he has of who she is. I think whenever anyone describes or discusses the concept of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I think I picture Clem first. That's fair. Right on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl Wikipedia, Clem is the second listed one. First is Annie Hall. Okay. So she's often called a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but it's arguably not one. 
She has her own goals independent of the male lead. I've still never seen Annie Hall. That's fine. But once again, I've got it. and I've not seen it. I like it more in theory than in practice. <laughs> I like the idea of that movie. I don't like that movie. Clementine in Eternal Sunshine acknowledges the trope of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl and rejects the type. Yep. In remark to Jim Carrey's Joel, too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive, but I'm just an effed up girl. That's the scene I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah. Although Joey Deathnell's summer in 500 Days of Summer is often identified, yes. the movie can be seen as a deconstruction of the trope because it shows the dangers of idealizing women as things rather than respecting them as real people. And Natalie Portman in Garden State is a big one, which the key part of all four of those, actually, including this, is that the primary character is the male character. And so, and in a specific format where we're getting his impression of that person. 500 Days of Summer is broken up based on his perspective. It does mention Ruby Sparks. Yeah. And it also mentions Stuart Murdoch's musical film, God Help the Girl. I don't know that one. Which I am aware of, but I have never seen. I don't know the whole Manic Pixie Dream Girl idea, but... I will get into a lot of detail in this, but if you need to hear me talking about it, go listen to Into the Night Minute, because I went into great detail about that and about Femme Fatales. I do feel like, to a smaller extent, my character of Sophie and Unstable is probably a bit of a manic bitchy dream girl type. I think the film is short enough she doesn't have time to be that. Yeah, that's fair. Which is interesting because essentially manic bitchy dream girl is such a stereotype that you can establish it in a scene. Yeah. But also, if the story is short enough, we're not getting that repetition of the trope yeah. enough for it to be shallow. Yeah, it do- I don't think it comes across as that because, yeah, with a short film, you kind of only want to follow one character's concepts anyway. Yeah. So giving her a side story would be a bit much. But also another advantage of the short film, which once again is obviously not justifying sexist writing. And I could admit that I probably can't write women great, although I'm hopefully getting better at it, is the idea that... Within a short film, playing with archetypes is, I think, the main way of writing characters. It's an easy way, yeah. And so as I'm starting to write larger scale things, it's kind of, oh, I can't just throw an archetype in and hope for the best, really. i got to do a bit better with my characters. Or you need a perspective thing like this. Most of this film is in his head. Yeah. So we're going to get his impression of her. I mean, I've not seen Manic Pixie Dream Girl as a criticism of Clown. Because that's what the film is trying to do. Yeah. Because it says here, Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodly, soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. And so I read that and I was like, oh, the fact that I kind of did this makes me one of those <laughs> writer-directors with fevered imaginations. But yeah, it's, I think it's definitely something I have played upon within short, but would definitely be giving characters a lot more depth. I like that a few of the big examples that we've just said, Annie Hall, Summer, and Clem here, are deep enough characters and they're present enough in the film that they don't, they grow out of the trope. I actually can't think of many bad examples, or good examples of it being bad, rather, Yeah, offhand. That's really fair. But probably because I wouldn't have liked those movies, or their romantic comedies that I wouldn't have cared for. Yeah, I'd say the same, actually. I can't really think of many possibly natalie portman's in garden state i haven't watched that movie in a while mm-hmm. i loved that movie when i first saw it but that's one of those movies that everyone always makes fun of yeah and for good reason but it's also i mean even the sentence you just said it's trying to teach this young man to enjoy life that's common enough theme it's going to be all over the place yeah and i don't think it's as we said it's not negative it's not bad yeah yeah because if it does feel like 
Well, actually, yeah, when I first read that quote, it exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer directors to teach brutally solve the to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. I read that for some reason first time as like a criticism, but I don't think it is. It's just a statement that that's a character type that exists. Right. That's more of a description and that's maybe a criticism of the writer, yeah. but not necessarily of the trope. There is a possible male version that says here that the Manic Pixie Dream Boy has been present in things as well. In Thought in Our Stars, Augustus Waters was given that. Yes, which might have actually been the point of that book and that movie. I haven't read the book, but I've seen the movie. Is that that might have been John Green trying to reverse that. Okay, I've only seen the film once and years ago, but it's one of my friend's favorite films. So I need to give it a whirl at some point again. Really intrigued by the concept because I've not, Literally, other than hearing the term and kind of filling in the blanks as to what it meant, I've never read into it like I am now. Mm. So, yeah, I find that interesting. And oh, I've said that from seeing her in the background of the scene wearing a hoodie. Yeah. That's that's where that came from. Yes. This minute is a good example of why she's that. She's this distant, blurry thing, very colorful, and then she's pouring alcohol on her coffee. It's getting his attention at the moment that he's talking about getting back together with the ex that in the script we learn, I don't think in the movie if they mention how long it's been, but he hasn't been together with Naomi for like two or three years. Mm. It's not like they just broke up. No. In the script, they did just get together, he says, last night and have sex, but they haven't been a couple in a while. I feel like the... Not always, but I think the the Manic Pixie Dream Girl type can be used as a way of glorifying mental illness as well. Yes. Because I think quite a lot those characters are kind of fun and quirky, but also, oh, they're depressed. Maybe not glorifying, but sort of the opposite, like turning it into the shallow thing where we don't have to, we don't have to think about why they're that way because we're just looking at the effect on someone else. Yeah, like, well, we're seeing her here pouring alcohol in their coffee and what we assume is fairly early in the morning. It's actually, we did calculate a couple of scores ago with Dave that this is most likely late in the afternoon. Okay, that's a little better. <laughs> at this point. But it's, it's, it's... Especially after, at the point they're going home, it's definitely late. Oh, afternoon. yeah, that's fair. But it, yeah, it's one of those where it's like, okay, we touch on it a little bit, but we don't fully delve into the sort of strains on their relationship as much and like what what her mental health is like clearly to the point that she has just got the alcohol ready to pour in her coffee it is a consistent part of her character too yeah that he will comment on later yeah this one less feels like it's glorifying it because it's acknowledging it as a flaw yeah but i i I definitely think that some manic pixie dream girl types do just sort of play on that or it's the quirky girl who i'm what i'm trying to think in my head is whether Hannah from 13 Reasons Why is a manic pixie dream girl. Sort of, except she's almost too big of a presence in the story. Yeah, that's fair. But she is sort of a symbol the entire time. I weirdly connected her to Moby Dick just now in my head because she's like this driving force that drives this story about other things. Similar to Clementine. Similar, you know, that's it's less of a problem of the trope. It's more of a problem of the writing around yeah. it because we have a lot of shallow female characters in movies all the time. Yeah. Because you have, most movies are still written by men and they aren't very good at writing women. Mm, that makes sense. Listen to Michael Myers minute. You'll know, hear me talking about the Jane intros, the Twitter account that makes fun essentially of introductions of female characters in the films and how horrible they are. Whereas this film in the original script started with Clementine. I think even to an extent in Dear Evan Hansen, 
like to an extent i'd say that zoe teaches him to embrace life a little more and part of her character as to what obviously he's had a crush on her for a while but i think yeah. he's drawn into her brokenness which glorifies the mental illness but then that film is actively about mental illness and dealing with it on a real level yeah so that absolutely makes sense yeah and despite what a lot of the criticisms say i don't know what it is like on a level of representation i don't want to talk about that I really liked the movie. <laughs> I actually need to, for a later episode of this show, I need to look up bad examples and watch some. I don't want, I don't think I want to watch some. Hopefully there'll be a bunch that I've already seen yeah. and I'm just not thinking of them because I don't like them. Yeah. The good ones are going to have better writing or a more interesting emotional story that ties it all together. Yeah. I, like, I feel like there's some bad examples and I can't think of any. I also felt like there'd be guaranteed to be some in Richard Curtis, but I'm looking on my Richard Curtis shelf now and skimming through them and not really. Hmm. Yeah, I think Kelly McDonald's character in Girl in the Cafe probably is an example. I only ever saw that once, as much as you it came yeah. up in terms of that time. I really like it, but it's probably I don't know if on a writing level, like it's actually good. I don't know. Mm. I find it really lovely and sweet, but that is, you know, you've got a sort of serious politician played by Bill Nye who falls in love with Kelly McDonald's kind of quirky girl who teaches him to fight for poverty and the likes, which the message is less about his own self-actualization and more about like a political message but at the end of the day she's still teaching him to become a better person and that's all that she exists to do can i, can I talk age ratings for a minute sure so what have we got remaining we've got the you which i think is probably well this film was a 15 right yes which you already talked about you 18 and 12 are what we've got left i'd say you and 18 are probably fairly boring because you is going to be like it's the very minor stuff. And 18 is going to be the anything that isn't possible at 15 and isn't illegal. It's probably 18. I'll go into 12 and 12A, close to your PG-13. Films classified 12A and video works classified 12 contain material that is not generally suitable for children aged under 12. No younger, you're younger than 12 can see a 12A film in a cinema unless accompanied by an adult. Adults planning on taking a child under 12 to view a 12A film should consider whether the film is suitable for that child. No one younger than 12 may rent or buy a 12-rated video work. No promotion of potentially dangerous behaviour which children are likely to copy. No glamorization of realistic or easily accessible weapons such as knives and no endorsement of antisocial behaviour. Discriminatory language or behaviour must not be endorsed by the work as a whole. Aggressive discriminatory language or behaviour is unlikely to be acceptable unless clearly condemned. Misuse of drugs must be infrequent and should not be glamorised or give detailed instruction. There may be moderate bad language. Strong language may be permitted depending on the manner in which it's used. Who is using the language, its frequency within the work as a whole, or any special contextual justification. So we'll go to about time. Got an R in America, got a 12A in the UK. There were like five F words in that, but they were all in non-aggressive contexts and were unlikely to offend. This film, by the way, uh, according to IMDb, says it's rated R for language, some drug and sexual content. I will check in a moment what the BBFC said on this. Which I'm fairly sure the only drug content is alcohol. Yeah, I can't right? think yeah. of any drug content. But it is excessive. It's part of the story is that she drinks a lot. Oh, no, they do make marijuana also, the other people. Okay, there, there is ratings info. So once as soon as I finish reading the 12A, I'll read the ratings info. But it is yeah. it's strong language. And there's a proper breakdown as well. So there may be nudity, but in the sexual context, it must be brief or discreet. Sexual activity may be briefly and discreetly portrayed. Moderate sex references are permitted, but frequent crude references are unlikely to be acceptable. So into the sex stuff, I guess the only thing is that brief implication of masturbation in Eternal Sunshine, which is one very minor 
scene, which I think the first time I saw it, I didn't even realise what was going on. Yeah. There may be verbal references to sexual violence, provided they're not graphic. The stronger forms of sexual violence, including rape, may only be implied. And any sexual threat or abusive behaviour must be brief and negatively presented. There may be moderate physical and psychological threat and horror sequences. Although some scenes may be disturbing, the overall tone should not be. Horror sequences should not be frequent or sustained. And there may be moderate violence, but it should not dwell on detail. There should be no emphasis on injuries or blood, but occasional gory moments may be permitted if justified by the context. So reminder to the listeners, if they want to actually hear us talk about 15, which is what Eternal Sunshine did get, then they should go and listen to Minutia Ex Machina. But the reason that it got a 15, according to the BBFC website, language, there is strong language. And then as a side note, a boy masturbates to a pornographic image. Detail is limited, although there is brief sight of breast nudity. A man and woman smoke a joint together. So that'll be these drug use then. Yeah. I don't even remember the image in the masturbation. So that is brief. Well, it says brief sight of breast nudity. So I'm assuming that is in the image. We might see it when his mother walks in. Yeah. But the attention isn't on the image. It down, but it might be visible. This is the stuff that's always fascinating about the BBFC. It's like, do they just, I, I don't know this. And I've got to ask this. It's like, do they just watch it all the way through? Or do they make notes and go like, okay, after we watch the film, we need to go back and like frame by frame, see what, because I feel like you probably can't get it all from one viewing. Or they have people who specialize, like are good at catching certain things. And so they just kind of watch it together. Yeah. And someone's noting the swear words. and That probably makes sense. That, that makes more sense. Going back to the previous topic, though, I think Clementine is the one who swears. I'm not sure if Joel does. Yeah, I don't know if he does ever, actually. That's a good point. But she definitely does. Yeah. Which I think is pretty good characterization i'd say is having those different levels of, of vocabulary for each character yeah which i think swearing and non-swearing is probably a very very easy thing to do but it really helps yeah i have watched films especially low budget indie films wherein every character is constantly f this f that yeah everybody talks like that they do not what do you think I say when I go to the feed store in town? Oh, now, Wally, give me a bag of that effing pig feed and 10 pounds of that bitchly cow corn. And in the bank, do I tell Mrs. Bollinger, oh, here's one big bastard of a check. Give me some of your Christing money. There, look there. See what you made me do? If it's the way that one character talks, that's fine. When it's every character in a scene, I don't believe that. Yeah, that, that was a thing. Um reservation dogs it was an fx show just recently about kids on an indian reservation at first it was one character would call the kids shit ass and i'm like okay that's cool he's got his own little slang and then the kids started saying i'm like is that a reservation slang is that like is that the writer yeah, i couldn't decide if it was the, a writer problem or if that was a reservation thing that was a slang they used a lot i don't know yeah it's it's i think it's gotta be gotta be the right but at first it was one character used it several times and then suddenly everyone was using it yeah that's weird it's stuff like that which is such a minor thing but is really really helpful and i like personally as someone who the listeners might realize does not swear very often or at all right i like when i write characters that do that it often has an effect i think so there is like one use, even though of only mild bad language in Reduce to Clear. And I'm hoping that that's jarring. Yeah. Hopefully you remember what bit I'm talking about, but you might not, admittedly. I actually no. don't. So it wasn't jarring for me. Okay. But I do swear. Now, we do need to get back to the minute itself so we can finish. Mm-hmm. Joel says of Naomi, she was nice. Nice is good, which will come back later. Sometimes is like being called nice. He says she loved me. There's Joel outside the house and then the house with Joel on the deck. I'd say the house is, by the way, called Kill Care. 
is located at 40 Georgica Association Road in Wainscott, Montauk. Uh, originally built in 1877 as a summer home for New York attorney Walter Edwards and his wife Camilla. And I liked this that I found according to Memorandum on the History of the Georgica Association, 1880 to 1948. The design instructions were very simple. They called in a dock builder from Brooklyn, gave him a few dimensions, and the injunction that the house must be extremely strong, then blithely set off for Europe. <laughs> That's all they told him. Is they had a dimensions and it had to be strong. Go. <laughs> the house was actually last sold just this past January, 2021, for 24.3 million after being listed in 2017 for 55 million. And I also learned their guest house is actually now bigger than this house because it's been redone more. And then we go to the diner, Joel at the table. At the time, it was Plaza Restaurant, 752 Montauk Highway. On Google Maps, it shows it is now Tacombe, but that has also been permanently closed. I like he is situated on the right of frame. When we cut to Clementine in the diner, she is situated on the left, which is if they're at the same table, though they are not. She is reading. I don't know what. And I think in the script, it references that he's trying to see what she's reading, but he can't. He takes out his journal slash sketchbook. And then he looks toward Clementine. And we've already referenced he sees her pouring alcohol into her coffee cup. And the minute ends with him watching. It's visually interesting, but also like narratively, not very much has happened to this minute. Right. It's setting up and take its time to the end of next minute. The interesting thing is that of the three films you've chosen to do for this trilogy is that two of them are very slow films, like good uh, and like pacing I never see as a criticism. Right. But both Ex Machina and Eternal Sunshine, for the most part, are very slow paced. With very few characters. Chronic Day also has very few characters, but it's more of a comedy. And so it's aiming for things happening and chase scenes. Was there anything that made you specifically decide these three? Was there anything to link them or just that you wanted to do three? Well, same reason I was calling it an existential trilogy. It's sort of, they're all together. They sort of, they fit together in my head. The hard part was I was trying to come up with like a fourth or a fifth. So I'd have like five episodes a week instead of three. And I never really came up with good ones. I also needed things that were the same length. Just by chance, Eternal Sunshine and Ex Machina are the same length. Oh, wow. Groundhog Day is a few minutes shorter, but I'll deal with that later. I feel like you can fill in some some extra Groundhog Day episodes pretty easily. Yeah. You, you've got stuff to say. Have you thought of just doing, of like taking your blog and just recording audio? Yes. When I first started doing podcasting, I was going to, and I recorded the first eight, I think. And then I realized the only way I'd want to release that is if I did it every day, like it was just an echo of the original. And I'm like, I can't keep up with that. Even with minimal editing, that's way yeah, too that's much. Fair. For something that only lasts a year. I mean, if I can do one a week and still last longer. You know? you, you got to hire Bill Murray, phone him up, get him to read all of Groundhog Day Project yeah. and, and record as if he watched Groundhog Day every day for a year. Right. I feel like that would instantly be a very successful podcast. <laughs> would be like, oh, it's, it's Bill Murray reading out essays written by the ma- a man who watched Groundhog Day every day for a year. <laughs> like that sounds like one yeah. of those really niche concepts that people go around telling everyone about you got to listen to this show. And you film him doing it in front. He reads it in front of like a fireplace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like his Christmas special is on Netflix. Unless you've got something more to say about this minute. Plugs. Plugs. Then we're out. You can find a lot of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment at rockyhorsemedia.co.uk. Yeah, that's my stuff. Eternal Sunshine the Spotless Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia X Mach and every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute. And every Thursday for more Eternal Sunshine. Follow this show on Twitter at spotless underscore minute on Instagram and Facebook at spotless minute. This has been a production of Lemon Drop Studio. 
can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Till next time. Look, man, I'm telling you right off the bat, I'm high maintenance, so I'm not going to tiptoe around your marriage or whatever it is you got going there. If you want to be with me, you're with me. Okay. Too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. I remember that speech really well. I had you pegged, didn't I? Yeah, the whole human race pegged. Hmm, probably. I still thought you were going to save my life. Even after that. different if we could just give it another go round remember me try your best maybe we can <laughs>